Well, let's pray together. Father, we thank you once again for these words that we turn to this evening, wonderful words pointing, in, pointing us to our Lord Jesus, who he for us, and how as his people we're to follow in his perfect example, becoming servants now, and looking forward to the glory that lies ahead with him. So, Father, open our hearts and minds to these truths, we pray. Shape our lives to be more and more like our Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray these things for your glory. Amen. Well, if I can invite you to take your Bible, please, and turn with me once again to uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 22. And those verses we read earlier on, verses 24 through to 30. In our previous sermon in Luke's Gospel, uh, we came to an event, didn't we, of enormous significance. It is the day before Jesus will be crucified. And as he meets with his disciples in the upper room to celebrate the Passover with them, He institutes the Lord's Supper. And then in the very next passage, we see that, sadly, things go from the sublime to the ridiculous. Because in these next few verses, we read that an argument then erupts amongst the disciples. And it seems just so incongruous, doesn't it? So inappropriate that such a very special occasion should then descend into this petty bickering amongst the disciples. But as we shall see, Jesus is going to use this then as a further opportunity to teach his disciples about what his kingdom is like and what it means to be a part of it. So let's have a look at this little story under three headings this evening. Firstly, I'd like us to notice the persistent sin of pride. The persistent sin of pride. That's what caused this argument, wasn't it? It's this sin of pride. In verse 24, Luke tells us that a dispute also arose among them, that is among the disciples, as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Now Luke doesn't tell us how exactly this argument started. Uh, People have uh, suggested it was perhaps because of a a disagreement about the seating arrangements at that Passover meal. As you probably know in those days, the more honoured a person was, the closer they sat to the host of the meal. So which seat you got was a matter of pride. Uh, Maybe it was the case that as the disciples came to the table that evening, they were jockeying for position. They were wanting to take the best place for themselves. That's something that Jesus had taught about earlier on in Luke's gospel. You might remember the words of Luke 14. Jesus said, but when you are invited to a feast, go and sit in the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honoured in the presence of all who sit at table with you. 
For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Maybe that was the reason why they argued that night, just arguing over who would sit in the honoured places at the Passover meal. Maybe it was an argument that started over who was going to wash the feet of all the disciples before Jesus, of course, then stood up and took that responsibility upon himself, acting as the, the servant in that context. And I wonder as well if Jesus' comment there in verses 21 and 22 had something to do with it. In those previous verses, Jesus had said, Behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And then in verse 23, notice how the disciples began to question one another at that point. Who is it going to be who's going to betray Jesus? And I wonder if it was maybe that debate about who was the worst disciple led then to an argument about who is the greatest disciple. You could imagine that happening, couldn't you? And whatever the exact cause of this disagreement, the point is that the pride in the hearts of the disciples comes to the surface in the midst of this heated exchange. And of course, this wasn't the first time that this kind of argument had taken place amongst the disciples. Remember back to chapter 9, verse 46, we read that an argument arose among them, that is, among the disciples, as to which of them was the greatest. It's almost exactly the same thing as what we read here, isn't it? Once again, just as they'd done so on at least one occasion previously, if not more, the disciples are having this same old argument all over again. That shows us, doesn't it, that pride is just a very persistent sin. And we know that from our own experience. I'm sure you would admit that. That desire to be in a place of honour, that desire to be looked up to by others, that desire to be seen as somebody important, it lurks within all of our hearts, doesn't it? Time and again, it rears its ugly head, maybe when we least expect it to. And it never goes away completely. Pride is a persistent sin. It's in our hearts, just as it was in the hearts of these disciples. And as well as noticing just how persistent this sin of pride is, I'd like us to notice in this verse, verse 24, three effects of the sin of pride. Three effects of the sin of pride. Firstly, and most obviously, notice that pride causes division. We see that with these disciples, don't we? Pride causes division. The sin of pride is the catalyst behind this argument erupting amongst them. And we see it in our own relationships as well, don't we? Pride makes us want to prove ourselves. It makes us want to show that we're better than those around us. Pride makes us compare ourselves with other people. Pride makes us see those around us as rivals. People to be put in their place. People to be got the better of. In all these ways, pride causes division. It rips apart relationships. 
It destroys love for one another. And then the second effect of pride that we see here is that pride craves recognition. Pride craves recognition. The wording that Luke uses there in verse 24 is quite telling, isn't it? Notice he doesn't say that the disciples were arguing about which of them was the greatest. They had argued about that in the past, we know that. But Luke says here that they're arguing about which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And you see there's a subtle difference there, isn't there? The argument here is not simply about status. The argument rather is about the recognition of status. Pride always craves recognition. Pride turns it into hopelessly needy people who always have to be showing off who we are, what we've done, what we've accomplished, so that we receive the recognition that we need from other people in order to feed our pride. You see, pride is actually insecurity. It's insecurity in disguise. It's pride that makes us crave recognition from other people who will be regarded as the greatest. And then worst of all, of course, pride takes our eyes off Jesus. Pride takes our eyes off Jesus. Remember what Jesus has just done in these preceding verses. He has just instituted the Lord's Supper. He's shown how that that ancient Passover celebration finds its fulfillment ultimately in him, the Passover lamb who would die for the sins of the world. And with the the bread and the wine, Jesus has set before his disciples these emblems of his body given for them and his blood, the blood of the new covenant. And so the minds of these disciples should be filled with wonder at what Christ is about to go and achieve for them at the cross the next day. But no, instead, they're arguing about which of them is the greatest. And you see, pride takes our eyes off Jesus. Pride makes us think only of ourselves rather than thinking of Christ. Strikes me that in the context of the Passover meal, these disciples would have been singing Psalm 115 as a part of that meal. They'd have just sung these words, Lord, not to us, oh, not to us, to your name be the praise. And having sung those words, they then argued about which of them was the greatest. It's ironic, isn't it? Pride takes our eyes off the Lord. Well, as Jesus looks on at this argument taking place and how pride is making his disciples, even in the upper room of all places, become divided and crave recognition. And how pride is making them take their eyes off him. He then intervenes to address this persistent problem of pride. And so secondly, notice this. Let's see what these verses have to tell us about the surprising pattern of Christ's kingdom. The surprising pattern of Christ's kingdom. And Jesus makes this point by drawing a a stark contrast between the way that the, the kingdoms of the world operate and the way that his kingdom Operates. So, first of all, how do the kingdoms of the world operate? 
Well, Jesus tells us in verse 25, he says, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. Jesus is saying the kingdoms of the world, they operate by this proud flaunting of authority. Those in positions of authority lord it over those who are weaker. Those in positions of authority in the world delight in being called benefactors. They, they love the recognition that those lofty titles give them. Even though, of course, so often they rule out of a sense of self-interest. The kingdoms of the world are fueled very often by pride. And Jesus wants his disciples to know that in his kingdom, things are to be very different. Yes, out in the kingdoms of the world, out in the, the realms of politics or business and so forth. It is quite understandable and it's to be expected that people might argue about who is the greatest. It's the name of the game in the world's way of thinking. But in Christ's kingdom, it is to be so different. There is a surprising pattern to Christ's kingdom, which he describes there in verse 26. Jesus says to his disciples, but not so with you, rather... Let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. To be great in Christ's kingdom doesn't mean to be in positions of power, positions of authority, lording it over other people. Now in Christ's kingdom, greatness has got absolutely nothing to do with receiving recognition from other people. Now greatness in Christ's kingdom is about taking the lowest place. And serving others out of humility. And so Jesus says the greatest among his disciples must become as the youngest. He's speaking in a, a culture where old age was seen as a, a sign of honor. Uh, where youthfulness was often despised or overlooked. And Jesus says to be great in his kingdom become as the youngest. That is take the lowest place. Surrender your rights. And if you find yourself in a position of leadership, use that as an opportunity not to be regarded as great, but to serve other people. And Jesus then presses that point further by asking this simple question of the disciples, for who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? He's asking them to consider the way things operate out in the world, and it's obvious, isn't it? Who is the greater person in the eyes of the world? The, those who sit at the top table at the corporate dinner or those who are the waiters and waitresses serving the food, tidying up afterwards, washing the dishes. And in the eyes of the world, the one who is seated at the top table and who is being served by others is the greater person. Those who wait on the tables and wash the dishes are seen as nobodies. That's the way it is in the world, isn't it? Is it not the one who reclines at table who is considered greater, says Jesus. And then he says this, but I am among you as the one who serves. And you see, Jesus is saying that this surprising pattern of his kingdom, where greatness means humbling ourselves and serving others, it is all summed up perfectly in him. Because he is the king of that kingdom. Undoubtedly, Christ is the greatest in his kingdom. And yet, he is the one who has humbled himself and become a servant. 
We can't help but think of Paul's words in Philippians 2, can we, at this point? He says that Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. And you see, the surprising pattern of Christ's kingdom is exemplified perfectly in Jesus himself. He is God the Son. He is eternally God. And yet he humbled himself. He became a servant. He left the splendor of heaven. He took a human nature to himself. And he was then born into this broken world. And he lived in this world a life of humble service. And in the context of the upper room, of course, Jesus has just given the disciples a very vivid demonstration of this. It was Jesus who laid aside his outer garments and took a towel and tied it around his waist and then poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet. He took the lowest place. He took the place of lowest honor, the place of a servant. And in great humility, he served his friends. And ultimately, this humbling of himself, this taking the place of the servant of others, would lead him eventually to the cross. Paul continues, doesn't he, in Philippians chapter 2, that being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus himself puts it like this in Mark chapter 10. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And if that is what Christ, the King himself, has done, humbling himself, Becoming a servant. Well, how can we, citizens in his kingdom, do anything else but follow his perfect example? It is just ridiculous, isn't it, to be a member of Christ's kingdom and to argue about who is the greatest and to jostle with one another for positions of highest honor and to be so needy and insecure that we crave the recognition of other people or to look at those around us as rivals who need to be put in their place people to be looked down upon or to get angry when we don't get the praise that we think we deserve or to get grumpy when we don't get our own way or we have to inconvenience ourselves for the sake of others or if we need to do something unpleasant for other people Such behavior belongs in the world, doesn't it? Not in Christ's kingdom. Because greatness in Christ's kingdom is through humbling ourselves and becoming a servant, just as Christ himself has done. And so we need to pray that the Spirit would work in our hearts to put to death more and more this persistent sin of pride. And increasingly to make us more and more like Jesus so that we would gladly humble ourselves and serve others. Ask yourself, what will that look like for you in the context of your own Christian life? And in the context of the life of this church, to humble yourself and take the lowest place and serve others. 
Going back once again to Philippians 2, Paul writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And so we've seen in these verses the persistent sin of pride and how that persistent sin is overturned in this surprising pattern of Christ's kingdom. And then thirdly, notice this. Notice the gracious promise of future glory. The gracious promise of future glory. Now for Jesus, humbling himself and becoming a servant resulted eventually in him being glorified. And so in Christ's kingdom, humility leads eventually to exaltation. Being a servant leads ultimately to glory. Again, Paul highlights that in Philippians 2, doesn't he? Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, for Jesus, humbling himself led eventually to his exaltation. He took the lowest place as a servant. And he ascended then to the highest place as Lord. And in verses 28 to 30, notice that Jesus tells us that this same principle applies to Christ's followers as well. Those who belong to his kingdom, those who follow him by humbling themselves and becoming servants, they can look forward to the glory that awaits. And in verses 28 to 30, we see Jesus assuring his disciples of this gracious promise of future glory. To start with, he says to his disciples, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read those words, they take me utterly by surprise. Jesus is commending his disciples for their faithfulness, how they've been faithful disciples to him throughout his trials. And remember the context in which Jesus said those words. Three minutes ago, these disciples were filled with pride, arguing with one another about who was the greatest. And then three hours in the future, they will all have deserted him just when his trials were really about to begin. It's surprising, isn't it? Why on earth is Jesus commending his disciples here for their faithfulness? But it should comfort us enormously, shouldn't it, as we read that verse? It should comfort us that Jesus gives such a charitable judgment of his servants. J.C. Ryle writes these words. He says, here we find Christ graciously dwelling on one good point in the disciples' conduct and holding it up to the perpetual notice of his church. They had been faithful to their master, notwithstanding all their faults. Their hearts had been right, whatever had been their mistakes. Let us rest our souls on the comfortable thought that the mind of Christ is always the same. If we are true believers... Let us know that he looks at our graces more than at our faults, that he pities our infirmities, and that he will not deal with us according to our sins. Never had a master such poor, weak servants 
as believers are to Christ, but never had servants such a compassionate and tender master as Christ is to believers. And it is so encouraging, isn't it, when we look at our own faltering service of Christ, the ways in which we don't serve him as we really ought to do. And so often our hearts become enveloped with pride, just like these disciples. And in his astounding grace towards us, Christ gives to us a very charitable judgment, doesn't he? He looks at our grace as more than our faults, though our faults are so many. And even to imperfect, unworthy servants like us, Jesus promises a gracious reward. He says to his disciples, I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jesus is saying that in eternity past, God the Father had assigned, or more literally to translate it, God the Father had covenanted a kingdom to his son, the the covenant of redemption, that his son would have a kingdom. And Jesus makes this wonderfully gracious promise to the 11 faithful disciples that they will share in his royal rule, in his kingdom when it is fully established at his return. They will enjoy eternal fellowship with Christ, eating and drinking at his table in glory. Now it's hard to say to what extent these blessings spoken of here apply just to those disciples themselves and how much they apply to all believers. I think in this instance, Jesus is speaking of of special roles assigned to the apostles in the kingdom of glory. And yet certainly we can say that Jesus elsewhere speaks of his faithful ones, all of his faithful ones, enjoying these same kinds of blessings, eating and drinking in his eternal kingdom with him, sharing in his rule by sitting with him in his throne. But regardless of what specifically Jesus means here, the gracious generosity of these promises shines through and takes us aback, doesn't it? That he promises to his people glory and honor and rewards that are far beyond anything that we could ever deserve. And as we humble ourselves and serve others for Christ's sake here, Jesus assures us, doesn't he, that in glory we will have a reward which is actually worthy of a king. Our heavenly rewards will be far out of proportion to anything that we've done for Jesus here. And really that should spur us on as we follow the example that Jesus has set for us. And as by God's grace within us, by the work of the Holy Spirit, we become increasingly more like Jesus. And as our persistent sinful pride is more and more put to death, and as gradually we're molded so that we ourselves fit with this surprising pattern of Christ's kingdom, where to be great means to humble ourselves and to become a servant. We can look forward to the fulfillment of Christ's promise here, these gracious rewards in future glory. Let's close in prayer.
Our Heavenly Father, we confess to you that we are people whose hearts have within them this persistent sin of pride, which is just so stubbornly rooted in our character. And we love to be first. We love to get our way. We love to be admired. We love to be thought well of. And as we've seen tonight, that pride causes divisions amongst us, and it makes us needy of recognition. And worst of all, it takes our eyes off Jesus, and it places the focus upon us instead. And so we pray that by the work of the Holy Spirit, we might put away that pride and instead humble ourselves and become servants, which is the surprising definition of greatness in Christ's kingdom. And in this, we thank you for the supreme example of Jesus himself, who humbled himself and who took the form of a servant and gave his life as a ransom for many. We praise you for him and for all that he has done. And we ask that you'd help us to have that same mind ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus. And we thank you that for those who follow Christ like this, there is the promise of gracious rewards in future glory. We know that we deserve absolutely nothing. And even if we did everything, we would still be unworthy servants. But we thank you that in your grace, you reward your people far beyond what we deserve. And we look forward to those gracious rewards. Help us to serve now as we anticipate the glory to come. Because we ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.